Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel, and I'm joined by Eminence Bill Werner and Brent Palm. We're going to delve into what's happening in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the DNR is continuing its push to prevent the spread of chronic wasting disease in wild deer across Minnesota. Public comment continues on the design for a new state flag and seal. Minnesota's medical cannabis program has added a new delivery method. But first, Minnesotans, particularly those of a certain age, have been marking 60 years since the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and a remarkable historical recording with a direct Minnesota connection has resurfaced. A June 13, 1940 interview with the former president, then only 23 years old, gave to MNN affiliate KROC while he was in Rochester for care at the Mayo Clinic. Eminem's Bill Werner talked with K-Rock's Andy Brownell about it. How did you find this? Remember the old steel storage shelves that you would see? Uh, the basement had a storeroom, or still does, uh, at the KROC studios. And they, uh, the original owners, the Gentling family, who launched the um, 1340 KROC AM signal in 1934, kept everything. And there were boxes and boxes full of recordings and photographs. And when the radio station was finally sold by the Genlings in the early 2000s, they were concerned that these would be lost forever. And uh, they made the wise choice of gathering up all of these boxes, loading them into a U-Haul, and taking them to the History Center of Olmstead County and donated them. So the History Center took on the task of cataloging all of these recordings and quite the daunting task and uh, hats off to them. And uh, of course they found that gem and many others uh, in these bins, a lot of, you know, just miscellaneous stuff as well, but beautiful photographs as well. Came time to celebrate the 80th anniversary of the launch of KROC AM. And so discussions were made, hey, did you find anything good? And the History Center, of course, said, yeah, we sure did. Found a lot of good stuff. (laughs) And that particular recording of JFK um, was used along with a very historic interview with Lou Gehrig when he was in Rochester at Mayo Clinic getting his diagnosis with uh, ALS. Oh, dear. Um, Oh, my gosh, the list is long. So we took the best of the best of the that recordings. That is the Gehrig recording is certainly historic. has to be historic. Baseball people go crazy over it because he's not mm-hmm. talking about ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. He's talking about mm-hmm. baseball. He's talking about sure. his peers, I mean, Babe Ruth. But the context of it in the sense that equally known for the disease named after him, right? Correct. Now, equally to his, his stellar record in baseball. Yes, exactly. And uh, put together uh, a a CD that we were going to distribute, and we did distribute uh, as part of the 80th celebration. Put several of them on YouTube, including the JFK interview and the Lou Gehrig interview, and a few others. And how was the reception of those? Did you get some Well, (laughs) let's put it this way. The Smithsonian soon called with questions about the JFK interview, and more research was done. And it, it came to the conclusion, and this could be disproved at any time, but as of now, it's believed to be the earliest recording of JFK's voice in the world. 
At this time, we're indeed pleased to have with us in our studio Mr. John F. Kennedy, son of Ambassador and Mrs. Joseph P. Kennedy, who is in our city visiting Dr. and Mrs. Paul O'Leary. Mr. Kennedy is the author of the recently published book, Why England Slept. But before we ask any questions about this publication, which has just completely sold out its first edition, I would like to read from Henry R. Luce, the editor of Time, Life, and Fortune magazine. John F. Kennedy is the son of the American ambassador to the court of St. James. He spent some time in London and Paris embassies. He's recently out of Harvard and hasn't uh, yet reached his middle twenties. Yet he has written a book of such painstaking scholarship, such mature understanding and fair-mindedness, and of such penetrating and timely conclusions that it is a notable textbook for our time. And with that, we want you two of the radio audience to meet Mr. John F. Kennedy, who is known to his friends as Jack Kennedy. But first, before we get into questions about this much-discussed book, I'd like to ask a few questions about how our guest has spent some of his 23 years. Tell me, Mr. Kennedy, where did you go to school? Well, I attended Harvard. I just finished there this June. And what are you studying at the present time? Well, I studied international relations there, and I plan to go on to law school for the next three years and study law at Yale University. And may I ask, what are your plans for the future? Well, I don't know exactly yet. I'd, I'm interested more or less in working sometime in my life for the government, but I haven't really decided as yet. Well, that's very interesting. And now a few questions that bear on the subject about uh, which you wrote in your book, Why England Slept. What is the book about? That, I think, would be the most appropriate question to ask you first. What is this book about, Mr. Kennedy? Well, this book is an attempt to analyze the, re the reasons for Britain's failure to rearm. It is perfectly evident to us now that they should have rearmed, but it, I've attempted to try to explain the reasons as they developed in England from around 1934-35 with the reason for their failing to rearm in the face of a rearming Germany. Well, now, a question that frequently is asked in this country is, how did the Germans ever get the jump on the British? Why didn't the British know what they were doing? Well, the truth is that Germany got a head start before the Allies grasped what she was about, not so much by the manufacture of actual implements of war as by laying a foundation for their manufacture. The German locomotive industry, for example, was assigned to the manufacture of tanks instead of rolling stock to the deteriorating German railways. Germany was shrewd in getting tooled up for aircraft production. Germany got the jump principally by getting everything ready for a large-scale output rather than by the actual output itself. There was considerable talk in Germany about a new cheap car that would make an automobile available for everyone in the Reich, but it was almost impossible to discover whether an automobile plant was being tooled to produce engines for the people's car or to produce engines for planes. When Germany, therefore, decided to start turning out planes by mass production, the task was easy. Britain, on the other hand, having judged Germany's future potentialities by her previous production, was caught completely unprepared. She had to go through the preliminary tooling-up period, which cost her nearly two years. And this handicap she's never been able to regain. Well, from your study and observations, are there any particular lessons that you believe can apply to us? Yes, I should think there was. In the first place, since May, Britain has made extraordinary steps in rearming. Tank production has doubled. Ammunition production, in some cases, has quadrupled. The reason for this is that every group in England now has been willing to sacrifice its group interest to the national interest, labor, capital, the people, and the government. However, before May of 1940, they didn't, and it had a fatal result. 
The point is that unless the American people are willing to make their sacrifices now that England has made when the menace appeared overwhelming and when it was obvious they had to make them, unless we are willing to do so now, we can't build up rearmament. The simple reason that it takes three and four years to do it. If the people of this country wait until Hitler appears overwhelming, then they won't have rearmament. We must realize that we must always keep our armaments equal to our commitment. We must realize that any bluff will be called. We cannot tell anyone to keep out of our hemisphere unless our armaments and the people behind these armaments are prepared to back up the command even to the ultimate point of going to war. If we had not been surrounded by oceans three and five thousand miles wide, we ourselves might be caving in at some Munich of the Western world. To say that democracy has been awakened by the events of the last few weeks is not enough. Any person will awaken when the house is burning down. What we need is an armed guard that will wake up when the fire first starts, or better yet, one that will not permit a fire to start at all. It's the system that functions in the pinches that survives. And 20 years, five months later. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Thanks, Bill. More Minnesota Matters after this. It's Thursday night, and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Started off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody squeeze in. Say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings. And another. Can we get some extra ranch sauce? Then there's the ceremonial nightcap. So what are we doing this weekend? And lastly, it's back to the car, which, if you're buzzed, could be the most expensive night of your life. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. The DNR is continuing its push to prevent the spread of chronic wasting disease in wild deer across Minnesota. Eminem's Brent Palm gets an update on this week's show about the fall deer harvest, number of CWD cases, and the state's response efforts. Well, Minnesota DNR Wildlife Health Supervisor Eric Hildebrand. Eric, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely, Brent. Happy to be here. Well, we, we've kind of wrapped up the firearms deer harvest in Minnesota. Recently got a re- release from the DNR, you folks reporting that one deer harvested during the firearms opening weekend near Wabasha tested positive for chronic wasting disease. Eric, it looks like it happened in a southeastern Minnesota CWD surveillance zone, so I'm guessing we weren't shocked by this finding? Oh, you're, you're correct, Bart. It's in the southeast part of the area in a surveillance zone. It's a new area of the state, so there is a shock there. Uh, new new DPA, deer permit area. So that was in permit area 342, which we have not detected any positive deer in that permit area yet. However, it is between two CWD management zones in Minnesota, and 
over the, the border into Wisconsin, into Buffalo County, Wisconsin, directly adjacent from Wabasha there, Wisconsin DNR has detected CWD in the wild deer over in that county. Okay, so uh, this is one. Do we have a total yet on how many across the entire state? You know, I know a lot of the cases for the last, you know, more than a decade have been mainly in southeastern Minnesota, but I, I know we had one near Grand Rapids. I know there's been some other ones. Do we have a total yet? It's preliminary, I'm guessing, because the seasons are still going a little bit. Yeah, you're right. It, it's still it's still preliminary. We do have a number of hunters that uh, are chasing the muzzleloader and archery deer seasons. We also have a um, special CWD late season hunt in certain DPAs, which will generate additional samples. So we'll have a good picture of all the samples and how the whole fall effort went by about you know mid-January once we get all those test results back. But I'm, I'm just looking at the database right now, and, and so far since July 1st, 2023, we have collected 12,081 samples throughout the state. A number of those are still pending, but... All in all, that's a lot of samples so far. Wow. So besides the mandatory testing on opening weekend, sounds like some other folks are also submitting samples? Yeah, there are. Yep. And so DNR has a, a additional opportunities and options for hunters anywhere in the state during any deer season. If they want to get their deer tested, they can. Okay. So we know we have about 12,000 samples. No idea yet how many positives? Yeah, we, we, like I said, we do have a number of those are still pending of the 12,000, but so far we are sitting at, let's see, 20, 23 confirmed positive deer, and we have 13 additional suspects on top of that. And, and all the suspects mean is we have an initial test, which is called an ELISA test. That tells us if that deer is suspect or not detected for the disease. If it comes back suspect, then we, we have the lab run a confirmation test and that test is an IHC or immunohistochemistry test and that's the gold standard uh, confirmation test for for all of our suspect deer. Hey let me ask you this Eric uh, then why did we put out the news release um, sp- uh, specifically about this one deer in this southeastern Minnesota zone? Yeah we, we got the news release out for that that positive in the, the DPA 342 near Wabasha because that's a new area of the state. We have not detected the disease in, in that perimeter area before. Um, so we were interested to get additional samples from that perimeter area because we would like to know more data. How prevalent is the disease on the landscape in that perimeter area? So we have discussions right now with, with our DNR leadership to see of, of additional ways to offer hunting opportunities, potentially through that, that late season hunt, which would be a, a December 15th to the 17th window. Uh, we should know more early next week on, on a, a late season hunt in that area. Um, but I recommend folks check out the DNR website because that's the one place that we can keep the most up-to-date information for, for folks to, to view and see what is current. Oh, okay. And then to kind of answer my question, does that mean that the other preliminary positives that we do have are in areas where CWD has been detected before? You're correct. A lot of them are coming from our southeast part of the state, which we do have a persisting infection down in that, that southeast corner of Minnesota. Hey, can you say if any of the preliminary positives are, are in the north or northeast? We have one suspect deer, uh, Eliza suspect, up in perimeter area 661. Uh, we do have uh, two additional uh, confirmed positives in that perimeter area. It's already in a COD management zone, so it's not a new area of the state. But that's the only other uh, current suspect that we really have out there. 
Um, another one is in Grand Rapids, permit area 679. But again, that's within a, a CWD management zone where we've detected other deer with the disease. Okay, and that might be a positive that we just have one in a new area? Or I'm guessing we probably don't want new areas, period, right? Right, yeah. It's, it's disheartening that, you know, we have a new area. Um, we, we never want a new area, obviously. Um, but like I mentioned, it's, it is between two CWD management zones and directly across the, the border from that Buffalo County, Wisconsin area that does have disease. Okay, and uh, you mentioned that if people have questions, there's a wealth of info on the DNR website. Yeah, absolutely, yep. We always keep that with the most up-to-date information, especially when it comes to new opportunities, such as a CWD late-season hunt. If there's new areas, new rules or regulations that go with it, so the one place that we can keep hunters and, and the public informed is our DNR website. Well, Wildlife Health Supervisor Eric Hildebrand, thanks for joining us. We always appreciate your insight and information, and maybe we'll check back with you in mid-January when some of these numbers are finalized. I'd be happy to help, Brent. Thank you. Eminence Brent Palm and Eric Hildebrand with the Minnesota DNR. Time for a quick break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters, I'm Tasha Radel. To say that Minnesotans are interested in the design for a new state flag is an understatement to say the least. When a special commission posted finalists for the flag and seal just over a week ago, it brought a flurry of news stories and public comment. Eminence Bill Werner asked Anita Gull, vice chair of the State Emblems Redesign Commission, about the volume of public input. Oh yes, it is pouring in. I believe the finalists for the flag and the seal went live on our website the late on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And already we've had around 2,000 comments, so they are pouring in. And are, are you able to say, um, perhaps not at this point, but uh, are the comments favorable? Are they, are they unfavorable? Are they weighted one way or the other? Is there a mix? Well, I must say I haven't looked through all of the 2,000 comments yet, but I will say the SEAL, there seems to be strong support among Minnesotans for the SEAL, particularly the, the SEAL design that has the loon on it and a number of Minnesota symbols. It has wild rice, our state grain. It has uh, an allusion to our lakes, the North Star, the Norway pine, our state tree. And there does seem to be a lot of support among Minnesotans for that SEAL design. Mm-hmm. Um, the reaction to the six flag finalists is a bit more mixed. I will say that there is no consensus that I can see over which design um, is emerging as the top, uh, you know, top choice for Minnesotans. There is a fair number of criticism. I I will say that, that I have read so far. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But again, the commission really, you know, we saw that so many of the submissions were the North Star, were the shades of blue and green, white and gold. So we really tried to honor what the submissions were and, and, and choose finalists that we thought reflected what the public wanted to see. Clearly, yeah, based on the, uh, on the submittals. And then now, you're, of course, you're getting another category of input, right, from the public. Uh, it, it sounds like you're saying that, uh, to coin a phrase, none of the above is, is at least what some people are saying. Would that, would that be accurate? Yes, that would be accurate to yeah. say. As, okay. as I read through some of, of the comments, some, you know, some people were like, absolutely, this one, please choose this one. But others, 
you know, said, none of them can we start over. So there is a lot of mixed opinion um, out there amongst Minnesotans. And as, as commissioners, we are we are definitely reading through all the public comments and, and trying to get trying to get a handle on on the direction maybe Minnesotans want us to head. Uh, but again, all of these think of these six finalists for the flag as first drafts. And so we will be looking for public input to to see how we can modify them and improve on on these designs. Okay, and you anticipated my next question. So the commission does have the option then of taking some of the designs, incorporating factors from various designs that have that have been submitted, possibly even taking suggestions going from a different angle uh, based on on public uh, input that you're receiving at this time. Would that be accurate to to state it that way? That is absolutely right. Okay. We we met on Zoom as a commission. And, and we talked about, you know, there's a lot of discussion. What exactly should the star look like? There are many different star designs that are not only on these six finalists, but on other submissions from Minnesotans. And so we're starting that conversation. Should and if so, how should the flag, the star design be changed on any one of these finalists? What about the shades of the different colors? Does this green need to be darker? Does this blue need to be lighter? And so these were just in the first step. We started having that conversation at our commission meeting, and that will continue in the next couple of weeks as we read and incorporate what the public is saying. You, you have a complex graphic design project there that is being made more complex by input from, <laughs> I, I suspect, many hundreds of thousands, ultimately, of Minnesotans. That is absolutely true. And, and we have to balance, you know, the, the principles of good graphic design with, with the symbols and the ideas that Minnesotans feel strongly about. And, and sometimes those two don't always align. And so we as a commission really have to figure out how can we best modify or, or produce a final product that, well, let's be honest, not everybody will be happy, you know. I think P.T. Barnum once said, you can please all of the people some of the time, you can please some of the people all of the time, but you can't please all of the people all of the time. Correct, correct. <laughs> so we're doing our best to to listen to the public, but also to adhere to, to the principles of good flag design and come up with something that in the end, I hope at least most Minnesotans uh, will be proud of. Now, just so that we're clear on the process from this point, the commission is slated or scheduled to make a decision by what date? We have to have our finalists for seal and flag chosen and submitted to the Minnesota legislature on or before January 1. Those are recommendations from the commission, is that correct? And the final decision is the Minnesota legislature's or explain how that works? Yes, that is absolutely correct. We will provide to the legislature our recommendation for seal and flag and then the legislature will take that up uh, when it returns to session in 2024. Now, if a person's been following this and they say, you know, I really want to give some comment to the commission on this, what's the best way to do that? Help us uh, navigate through that. Sure. If you would simply Google State Emblems Redesign Commission and then Minnesota Flags, I'm sure we will be the first thing that will pop up on your Google search. I have a feeling we're one of the most popular sites trending in Minnesota right now. So. I think it came right up on my Google search. I'll tell See, you that. There you go. Yeah, and then and then it's and then it's obvious. Okay, so State Emblems Redesign Commission Minnesota flag should get you to a point where it's pretty obvious then where where you click to to submit comments. Is that right? 
Absolutely. There's a lot of things that uh, that Minnesotans care about or don't care about so much. This is clearly right at the top of the list <laughs> as far as things that, that they are really engaging in. So, it, you know, and rightfully so. The flag is something that, you know, we all share as a state and will be flying ideally for generations. So it's good that Minnesotans are taking an active interest in this. That is Anita Gall, vice chair of the State Emblems Redesign Commission. Tasha? Thanks, Phil. More Minnesota Matters after this. You wanted to see me? Yes, please. Have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team. But I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. (sighs) We want to hire you. You're, You're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. Minnesota's medical cannabis program has added a new delivery method for patients. Joining me today is Office of Medical Cannabis Research Manager, David Rock. Minnesota's added dry herb vaporization to the list of approved delivery methods. And this will go into effect for our patients starting next year, August 1st of 2024. And dry vaporization is a method of consuming dry cannabis flower by heating it without burning it. So it's different than just smoking cannabis. Um, it, it has a different effect. It, it produces vapor instead of smoke with this method. All right. And was this something that uh, patients have been advocating for? They have been. We've, we've heard for a while that patients have wanted it, and so we're really happy to add it um, in the upcoming year. And let's talk a, a little bit about what other uh, delivery methods you off, offer when it comes to medical cannabis. Sure. So there are several different methods. So such things as like pills or tablets. Um, people can also now smoke the cannabis. There's lotions and other type of balms that people can purchase as well. And, you know, most of this was all set in place back when the program started about eight years ago. But over time, we have added a few methods, and that includes the smoking of cannabis and edibles also were added in 2020. And so this is now another method that we're adding. And what's nice about this one is that it's a fast-acting product. So it can take from 1 to 15 minutes for the effects to set in, and that's important for our patients. All right, and I know when the program was initially created, there were nine conditions that uh, qualified a patient uh, to be eligible for medical cannabis, and I know that over the years that uh, qualifying conditions have expanded. Is, is that fair to say? That's true. So we started out with nine conditions, and currently there are 19 conditions that qualify a patient to be part of our program. All right, and do we have an estimate on how many people are taking part in, in the uh, state cannabis program? Sure, we have approximately 42,000 Minnesotans are part of our medical program. And then lastly, for someone uh, that might be listening who who wants more information or to see who 
or what, whether or not they qualify, what is a good first step? Well, a great first step to understand more about the program and to see if people qualify is to visit our website, which is health.state.mn.us slash cannabis. Thanks again to my guest, David Rock, with the State Office of Medical Cannabis. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Minnesota Matters. Be sure to join us next week on this MNN affiliate station, same time, same place. You can also find Minnesota Matters in podcast form on your favorite platform. From all of us here at MNN, have a great week. Until next time, I'm Tasha Radel.